Welcome to episode 26, where I speak to Rachel Meyer, mum to three beautiful kids and an absolute weapon on the climbing wall. Rachel bought home New Zealand's first climbing medal this year, coming second at World Champs in Salt Lake City. We talk about her journey through a major ankle injury, which led to multiple surgeries thereafter, before leading to a lower limb amputation in 2019. This was a really meaningful and raw conversation, especially around mental health. A heads up, this episode does mention suicide, and as September is World Suicide Awareness Month, this is your reminder to check in with those around you and actually have meaningful conversations. Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, You can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Rachel Meyer, and she is an amazing lady I had the pleasure of working with earlier this year. But Rachel, for those listening who might have no idea who you are, how would you introduce yourself? Well, kia ora Kushla, and firstly, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's exciting to be here. Um, my name is Rachel Meyer. I am a mum to three incredibly amazing kids. Um, Charlotte is 17, Max is 15 and Colin is 12. I'm a speaker and an advocate for uh, mental health, well-being, resilience Um, and I'm also a competitive rock climber for New Zealand having just come home from the World Cup circuit in Europe and the USA. Uh, I'm also a below the knee amputee so I'm a sport climber in the power climbing category I compete in AL2 which is for lower limb amputees and I'm currently ranked somewhere around fourth in the world. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Thank you. It feels good. <laughs> yeah yeah to say that you're you know you're made the top few rock climbers in the world um is yeah pretty cool. Yeah. So when did this start for you? Did you, you know, were you out rock climbing from a young age or when did you decide, yep, this is my cup of tea? Um, I kind of just fell into it by chance and through a series of circumstances that like, you couldn't plan. I had played netball and football through my early high school years, but I also moved around a lot. Our family moved a bit. So I went to four different primary schools and one intermediate, and I was on to my second high school before I came across climbing. And I always felt, um, I guess I struggled with friendships and connecting to new people and new schools and often felt like I didn't really fit or belong. 
And when I moved to this um, high school, it came with the move. We moved to towns as well, and I wasn't um, I wasn't able to play in the football squad because the expectation in my family is that you wouldn't play sport on a Sunday; it would be a rest day. And so I kind of just stumbled across climbing as an option that was weekdays um, and the occasional Saturday. And I just remember the minute I walked into the wall, it was such an eclectic group of kids from all different cliques in school. And we would leave our bags at the door and I guess our baggage at the door and come as we are and climb. And we're trusting each other with our lives and our well-being and our safety. And so that instantly formed a really strong bond. And it didn't seem to matter who we were or what we loved outside of climbing. And inside those walls, we were a family. And, yeah, that was my introduction to climbing at the age of 16. Did you, like, when did you decide that you wanted to take it to a more competitive level? Was that something that (laughs) school helped you with or did that happen after school? It was kind of just this fun idea that our climbing coach through school had was, well, hey, look, there's a secondary school's uh, South Island Rock Climbing Championships. Why don't we take a couple of teams? And I was like, well, that sounds like a weekend away from home and I'm a teenager and that sounds good. So I signed up for that one and we all rattled off up to Christchurch. I was from in Invercargill, so it was a nice, good road trip. Um, and... Yeah, that was my first climbing competition. And also that was the place where I had my climbing accident um, right then and there on that weekend. So I'm not sure how much my parents would say the trip was a success. Um, But it happened and it all became a part of the whole of who I am now. And I don't think I would do anything different looking back. What happened? (laughs) What happened? Um, It actually was just a really low-key boulder problem that I was working on as a cool-down at the end of the competition day. So it wasn't during the comps. Uh, Our team had the top score into the finals for the next day, and we'd made our way into the bouldering room to do some warm-down exercises. I was really tired, and I decided that instead of climbing all the way to the top of the boulder wall and hiking it over the top and then kind of walking down, I would do a controlled drop because I thought that if I gunned it for that last move, I was going to make a mistake and slip and have an uncontrolled fall. So it seemed like the much safer safer option to do a controlled drop. So I said to my spotter, I'm going to come down. Are you ready? You've got me. And he's like, yep, spot you. And I consciously decided to let go. He caught me um, from behind. It took half the weight the way you do. And um, <laughs> I just landed on this little margin between two crash pads where they kind of duct taped them back together and blew one ankle very nearly out the side of the foot that was dislocated and shattered and you could see all of that through the very stretched skin Um, and I broke the other one at the same time and I remember at the time thinking oh that felt not ideal and I went to sit up and have a look and my spotter just throw an arm across my chest, slammed me back to the mat and said, do not look. And that was the point where I worked out probably something had gone wrong. Oh, my word. So you yeah. didn't just sprain your ankle. You no. thoroughly broke one and broke the other yeah. at the same time. 
Yeah, it's really not cool to go back to school in a wheelchair with two feet and plaster. <laughs> that's, that's not ideal. Um, the left ankle that was shattered, it had so many breaks in it, they had to put it back together with, I think, four me- big metal screws. But they also, where part of the bone had just disintegrated to bone dust, whatever we call it, um, that was repaired with part of my hip. So they grafted bone out of my hip and put that into my ankle. Isn't it amazing what they can do? It is. And it's so weird, the things that hurt after major surgery like that. Obviously, the surgery site was traumatic, but I remember sneezing after the bone graft and passing out because I was in so much pain from this graft site on my hip. And they really only took like the tip of a thumb-sized worth of bone out of there. So excruciatingly painful. And <sighs> what, so broken ankle, okay, and mm-hmm. then surgery to help repair that. How mm. did that then lead to an amputation? Mm. Good question. Um, I had over the course of 18 years, nine surgeries, trying to repair the ankle, regain mobility. I was in this constant state of recovery from surgery rehabilitation trying to get more active get back on my feet it would last a year or two and then I would be a downhill slide where you know you're just waiting for the next operation so there's just no hope in that it's quite endless and it goes on and on and you're just wondering what are they going to suggest next um and at one point I think it was 2014 2015 one surgeon said to me look we've done everything we can except There's an experimental operation that I've done once before in New Zealand. Um, Someone else in New Zealand has done it three times. We we could put your whole ankle into an X-fit frame and you could slowly stretch the joint back part and that might allow room for cartilage to grow and for the joint to heal and some damage to um, recover. What do you think? Should we give it a go? And he said that his last patient it actually hadn't worked on. So I knew going into that surgery it had a 100% fail rate. But it seemed like the thing to do if your next step was to amputate. So I I did. I had 12 rods drilled through and in and out of my foot and one side out the other and up the bones of my shin. And then I had a pair of spanners. And I would sit at home with the spanners and tinker with this little expert frame and stretch my ankle um, wider lengthwise or vertically I'm trying to think how to explain it on a podcast um and it didn't work <laughs> so I was added to that statistic and then um I actually competed in my first paraclimbing world championships between that surgery and my amputation and it was my way of sort of trying to get back to climbing I hadn't done it for 18 years my life was very dominated by pain and I guess I've made my world so much smaller to try and cope and going back to climbing, I guess my kids were a catalyst for that, wanting to um, show them positive ways to deal with uh, challenges and adversity. And, yeah, I went, did my first world, world championship in Austria and spent some time with amazing people who were amputees and just showed me the way a little bit and gave me the confidence. And so in 2019, I came home and begged the surgeon to remove the leg. And it's now in my wardrobe. <laughs> Fun fact. Your leg. Your, your face. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's in my wardrobe. Um, I had it cremated. I wasn't too sure what to do with it. It didn't feel like garbage to throw away. 
but I'm not dead, so I'm not burying it yet. Um, and in my indecision, I thought the best option would be to have it cremated and put it somewhere safe and then when I was ready, work out what I wanted to do with it. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Yeah. And, with, I mean, the, the amputation really wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was no. almost three, is it three years ago? Yeah, February 2019. And then in July 2019, four and a half months later, I went off and did another world championship. <laughs> because it's good therapy. Climbing is good um, unlicensed therapy. I think it really helped me push into my rehab afterwards because I had this deadline and also you know you're on the world stage and you're representing your country. Mm. So I wanted to make New Zealand proud, make my kids proud and make myself proud as well. But, yeah, when you're when you're working hard for a qualification at a national level for an international level competition, you definitely follow instructions and do your rehab. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was good for me. It was really good. And just jumping back to that device that they had that you had to like, before your amputation where you were trying Mm -hmm. to stretch out the joint, I remember you showed me a photo of that. And for those listening, it literally looked like a torture device. Like, it looked so painful. It was horrific. I I remember the first week, which (laughs) I remember when I was discharged, I was discharged from the hospital on a Saturday in Wellington on codeine and Panadol I think and maybe ibuprofen and it just was not enough and I was just in this absolute like just curled up in the fetal position just sobbing from the pain of it and then having to physically psych myself up to get those spanners back out and turn another quarter and then turn another quarter and keep going until we had about 12 mils of space Um, and then it was held in that traction frame for four months and bearing in mind that I'm a, a mother of three children um, Charlotte at that age was oh, a lot younger than now. I can't even do the math. My brain is porridge. Um, and uh, my youngest was four. He was at kindy. And I remember this because I, the first thing I did when I got home was jumped in the car to check that I could still drive because I had an automatic car. And I could still drive and that was helpful to feel like I wasn't trapped at home. But also meant that I could continue parenting. And so... I recall dropping him off at kindy many, many times and without fail, every time a child would tug on their mother's sleeve whilst staring at me and then whisper, not so quietly, mummy, mummy, look, that lady's a transformer. (laughs) And I'd be thinking, hell yes, I am. Kids have no filter. (laughs) No, but it's great. I love it. They do it in like... Not an offensive way. Um, Just so honest. <laughs> yeah, so honest. But I probably did look pretty ridiculous on my crutches. I couldn't wait there on it, crutching in with this massive thing hanging off my leg. It was a lot of weight. Um, and you could see, like, the pin sites that go into the shin, you could see right down into the holes to start with. It was pretty fleshy and horrible um and then as time went on the foot started to look like it was dead and you'd be losing like all the top layer of skin off it um yeah it wasn't pretty (laughs) or fun and how long from that surgery until you were you know fully rehabbed to a degree where you could go off and go to austria like what was the time frame um i actually don't remember that's a good question. I don't think it was long. 
because I wasn't walking afterwards without the use of a crutch or an eye walk, which is like a prosthetic leg, but you kind of strapped it on and you're kneeling on your shin. It's actually really hard to explain to your listeners what it looks like, but feel free to go and Google eye walk, the letter I and then the word walk. Um, that was a very uncomfortable device that I guess was a bit of a bridge for me between seasons of life. Mm. Um, Twenty might have been, It could have been two or three years between that frame the exfit frame mm. and Austria, but there was a very long period of recovery in between. And I was fighting for things like just taking some basic steps across the street, holding my son's hand um, as a preschooler, wanting to be able to help him cross the street safely. You can't do that on crutches. Mm. And I remember all my rehab after that exfit frame, I would I'd be in the hydrotherapy pool, holding onto the handrail with one hand and the sunlight coming through this window and it would hit the water next to me and I would just run my other hand through the water as I was taking these steps and I would imagine that my hand was holding my son's hand and I would just pretend I was holding his hand and walking and that's something that I couldn't do and that was an empowering way, I guess, to visualise and to try and get through, you know, a good solid 18 months of rehab that actually were nowhere. I didn't rehabilitate. I wasn't okay. I couldn't walk afterwards. Um, I hadn't been walking before and it hadn't given me the outcome that I'd hoped for. So, yeah, I think all along the way, my kids have been a huge part of my journey. Um, that example with rehab and, and learning to walk, and then when that didn't happen, that was when I sort of went back to climbing and thought, well, I, I need a way to get active and to save my mental health and to be okay when it's not okay. And I, maybe I could climb without using my leg. Um, my youngest at that point somewhere in that time frame had said to me mum you don't really like food do you you just eat pills and drink coffee and it was such a punch in the stomach to see like a good one one that I needed but just to see how they saw me dealing with pain and this negative outcome from surgery and not having the life that I you know that I used to have and missing it and there's so much heartache in losing your mobility. You don't just lose something physical. You lose a piece of your soul, really. I remember one child writing me a Mother's Day card and it said, Dear Mum, you're the best mum in the world. I love you so much. I especially like that you make my bed and do the baking. And I did none of those things. My ACC home health care person did those things. So when you lose your mobility, you just you lose so much of yourself and going back to climbing for me before that first world championship, it wasn't about competing. It wasn't about New Zealand nationals and world championship was not on my radar at all. I just wanted a way to survive and a way to feel like I was alive again. And, and that's what I did. And there's no climbing hall in my city. So it took a bit of effort to get there, but definitely worth it. Mm, it was your escape. It was your yeah. time for you to do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really tough. Um, but now you you do walk now, don't you? You had or you did have a prosthetic, was that? Yes. Yeah. So yes. there was obviously um, eventually some success with that. Yeah, the first, um, well, it's been three years, and I did a quick leg count in the cupboard actually this week. I think there's been about 13 or 14 <laughs> leg cast models, like sockets models. Wow. Um, that's not normal. 
<laughs> but it does happen to some of us, probably more than people are aware. Um, and that's just through loss of volume over the three years that it's been and continually having changes to my stump side and and the way that fits into a socket and different pressure points. I've had a lot of trouble with that. And I still have ongoing nerve pain. So I've got some neuromas and a herniated muscle in the stump and compression of nerves that have slipped under a herniated muscle. And it is quite a mess there. Mm. I'm in 10 out of 10 nerve pain for 14 hours a day and then all night. So finding a way to get a prosthetic to fit with those challenges has been enormously difficult and it's just an ongoing evolution of me I guess Mm. Um, and I'm between legs at the moment Um, haven't walked since just after the first world cup in Salt Lake City where I then had COVID and lost weight and tomorrow I will head up to the Lund Centre in Tauranga for a new casting and we're going to start again and make a new leg and hopefully I'll be walking for a bit and just to confirm, is your amputation below knee or above knee? Below the knee. And is there is there pros and cons to below and above with in terms of getting a prosthetic to fit? Um, I don't. I, I haven't asked that question because I'm not planning to go above the knee. <laughs> um, I guess there's pros and cons with the length that you have left below mm. the knee and my, my residual limb is quite long yeah. because I wanted that lever for climbing and also because the only damaged part of my leg was the ankle. It felt like not going too far gave me room to fix problems later and trim it back if needed yeah. um, and it also gave me that lever for climbing. So in some sense that's definitely made it harder I think having more surface area to try and keep stable and to fit into your prosthetic can be really challenging Mm. but there's challenges either way and it's not an easy road and for people out there who might be listening and thinking oh I've got ongoing ankle problems maybe I should cut it off I don't at any point want to over glamorize you know para-athlete life or prosthetic life it is hard it's brutal I'm on my face crying every day right now Um, I have a lot of support to get through and if I didn't have that support you know, some days it's doubtful <laughs> whether we'd all make it. Um, it's hard. It's not just a piece of your body. It is, it, it, I guess, it's it's so much more than that. And, yeah. It just makes every part of your day that much harder, especially when yeah. you're really juggling, you know, three kids and everything else. It's certainly not easy. Yeah, I mean, here's a, here's a funny story for you. Um, so Charlotte, my daughter, she's 17. She is a bit of a fairy, a bit magical. We call her superpowered. <laughs> she has a rare chromosome special edition um, called Tripe 12. There's only 30 people in the world that are known to have this. So if you're out there and listening and you know someone with Tripe 12, please get in touch. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. Um, but it means that her extra colours are ADHD and autism and intellectual disability and Honestly, some days it is just carnage in my house. <laughs> and and I'm going through these scenarios on one leg. So uh, last weekend I was lying in bed. There was rain on the roof. It was about 7.30 in the morning and I was thinking, oh, it's so nice. Charlotte slept in for a little bit. Maybe I could just slowly lie here and then ease out into the day and, and start slowly. And next minute down in the kitchen you hear, uh-oh, it's an emergency. <laughs> 
And I'm thinking, oh, what is it? What is it? And then I had some absolutely hysterical laughter. I'm like, oh, well, it can't be that bad. Like, she's laughing. It's not that bad. Um, I'll just slowly start moving to, you know, I'll, I'll get up, I'll get dressed, I'll put my contacts in and I'll head out in that direction and, and see what's going on. But she, she's quite colourful with her language and I genuinely didn't expect it to be an emergency. Um, but then the next minute I hear more delighted laughter and words that would terrify any mother. Um, I hear, there's a trail of blood. It's hilarious. I'm making footprints. I better get the emergency kit from the car. And I'm just dive-rolled out of bed on all fours, crawling like as fast as I possibly can because no leg. Uh, at some point in the hallway, I'm overtaken by my 15-year-old because he's faster on his legs and has heard what's happening. And so we both sort of tumble and charge out there. And sure enough, she's stomping footprints of blood all through the house, just thinking it's literally the funniest thing on the planet. And she dropped a very small glass jar and stood on a piece. She has sensory processing dysfunction, so she doesn't really feel the pain. But she was very entertained by the blood and the trail. And then I'm there on my hands and knees crawling, trying to help her sit down and stop moving and talk her into staying still. And then it's just, it's a lot on one leg. (laughs) Every day must be so interesting. (laughs) So interesting. (laughs) I remember when she was about, oh, I think she was eight and I was just, so so tired and I do like looking back I feel quite bad for it but I was so tired and she came down to the bathroom I'd locked myself in my bathroom and was just sitting there being really quiet since she couldn't find me I just wanted like just two minutes to sit down um and she came and she knocked on the door and then she knocked again and she's quite persistent so I think she'd worked out that's where I was and she called out mummy where are you and I answered (laughs) I'm in the kitchen and so she said okay bye and she went out to the kitchen to go find me I had another couple of minutes to just sit there and then eventually you hear her footprints just stomping down that hallway and she comes back and bangs on the door you're not in the kitchen you pranked me (laughs) you just grab the little little minutes of rest any chance you can and then we're climbing for me became quite a really good strategy for well-being being if we bring it back to the sport it's not just about competition for me it's never been about winning everything or anything um it's not about setting New Zealand records although they're really fun and I love doing that and carving out a piece of history for our country but it's always been about the people connecting to people having a life that's outside of the role of mother which Mm -hmm. can be really all-consuming and having something that just screams positivity and empowerment in my life Mm. and just with the resilient side of things like how much you have gotten through and continue to role model to your children just how tough you are like what what's your advice to people who are going through really tough times I mean we all have tough moments Mm. in life like what's your advice to help people be more resilient um you know I think the parts of us as a family that make us the most resilient are 
are the moments where we have learned to say, I'm not okay, or I need your help. Mm. And yeah, my kids are 12 and 15 and 17, but I have said that to all of them many times. Um, I I taught my youngest to make a flat white on the, on the coffee machine at the age of five. It's definitely a positive tip there. Teach your kids <laughs> how to make your coffee. But um, aside from the humour in that, I, we do use things like, would you like a cup of tea? Would you like a cup of coffee or a hot chocolate? And those little moments of grace and support when someone is overwhelmed and tired and fatigued and not feeling resilient. And I think that's what gets you through. It's not trying to be tough or strong. It's actually being vulnerable and being the opposite and learning to ask really simple questions that people don't actually ask often, I don't think. Like, what does support look like for you right now? Um, When my kids had meltdown or behavior or, I don't know, acting out or tantrums when they were younger. And I always tried to approach it from a, a, well, this is communication perspective. And I think that comes from having a child with autism is every behavior is actually communication. So that's just been rolled out to the boys as well. But it's taught me a really valuable lesson and then it's modeled to them a valuable life skill, which is when someone's overwhelmed, ask them what support looks like show them support physically, do whatever they need in that moment. And actually then the challenge or the adversity or the behaviour or um, or the setback or the emotions, they all just become smaller anyway and because you don't feel alone in it. So I don't know if that makes sense, mm. but that, that would be my advice, would be be vulnerable. Mm. Well, there's two parts to that really, isn't there? I think with the conversations you know, are you okay? Well, every day, you know, you always say, g'day, how are you going? And we always just automatically reply with, oh yeah, good, good, good. And we're, we could have had the crappiest day or just received mm-hmm. the worst news, but no, no, we're good, yeah, all yeah. good here. And it's just like, I think it's actually stopping and giving someone the chance to actually be honest and being like, are you okay? Really? Like, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. And, I think- and we're not teaching our kids anything by masking all the time anyway. And I used to do that. I 100% used to do that. I had shut down... Um, I didn't feel, I didn't allow myself any emotions happy or sad because that felt like the only way to survive. Mm. But it's not surviving, really. It's just existing. Mm-hmm. And I remember just losing it on the floor in the kitchen one day, trying to hide from the kids. I'd popped into the kitchen and I was having a cry and I was trying to cry silently and I didn't want them to know. And my littlest one walked into the room and he looked at me. And, I mean, the first thing he said was, Mommy, you look like a clown. <laughs> <laughs> because I had massive big mascara puddles all down my face. Oh. But then when he worked out, it was because I was crying. He said, are you okay? And this was the first point that he offered, would you like a cup of tea? Because I've offered them so many times. And I guess it was in that moment that I realized that learned the skills. They know how to be an encouraging person and shying away from the reality of how harsh life can be and pretending to them that it's all rose-tinted glasses and sunshines and rainbows and unicorns. It's just not teaching them anything at all. Mm, Very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing like a cup of tea in a conversation to help sometimes. And also, just that, like we were saying before we jumped on the podcast, like the little acts of kindness sometimes Mm. doing can speak so much louder than words and just even you know 
bringing around a takeaway coffee for someone or making them a meal like it can just mean so much to someone who's needing some help yeah absolutely and I hope that listeners here um won't just sort of think oh that's a really nice idea or that's inspiring or that's wonderful I hope that it makes somebody go away and go you know I'm putting that on the calendar every Friday I'm gonna do something or once a month I'm gonna spend 50 on a stranger or like whatever it is I mean or five a coffee it doesn't take much to make somebody smile and to just give them a little bit of hope that there's so much in the world to keep going for Mm. yeah Mm. well said so with your climbing let's jump into the amazing journey you had this year you headed (laughs) off to the states around was it the end of may you you left yeah 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 i left yeah mid to late may there's so much to talk about here and i think a lot (laughs) of the people listening who don't understand climbing will find how it all the whole competition works really fascinating um okay but why don't we talk through your first competition was it in salt lake city yes yeah yeah so talk us through how that all went um i think uh, qualifiers went amazing. They, I honestly came out feeling so confident and so excited. I uh, hadn't competed on the international stage since 2019, and that's because of COVID. But the World Cup circuit had gone ahead last year in 2021. And so I had no idea where I was going to fit in, I guess, in the deck, if that makes sense. Like, it's pretty stacked. There's some amazing athletes. The category had doubled since I'd last competed. So there's a lot of strong competition out there, and these athletes have had access to international comps to, you know, put their skills to the test and um, and refine them, and I had not had that access. So I was definitely nervous to start with, but once I got off that plane, it was just trusting the process, trusting the work that I'd put in, and being confident in that and remembering to go out there and have fun. And I honestly came out of qualifiers feeling like I could not have climbed harder or better. I hadn't fallen at any point from a silly mistake. Like I'd come off battered and exhausted. I'd put everything out there. I had one top and I was the only athlete in my category to have a top. So that was really exciting. And I qualified for finals the next day in first place. So again, really exciting the hope was to come home with New Zealand's first medal we've never seen a medal in the sport in able or disabled athletes for female or male so that was the New Zealand record I was going for and I was really hoping that would be gold I woke up on the morning of finals um, with a cracking headache I probably had about three hours sleep I spent the morning vomiting I did do a COVID test and it was negative and my symptoms were headache and nausea vomiting and with three hours sleep and the pressure of the competition that's not unusual for me to be unwell and to have a headache and to be feeling nauseous and sick so we had all the conversations that needed to be had with people we needed to have them with and um, it was decided I would go ahead and compete I was really crooked the whole morning Um, we get put into an isolation room so all the athletes are locked out the back somewhere together we do have access to water and snacks a toilet and somewhere to warm up but we cannot communicate with anyone our phones are taken off us um i didn't have a coach there but i did have uh, the usa paraclimbing coach who kept an eye out for me and um but yeah no contingent from new zealanders support persons and then yeah you're brought out 
as a group to have a look at your finals climb and you get to see it for the first time right before you compete. You get six minutes to observe that climb, have a look at it, try and work out in your head where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. Um, and meanwhile, there's cameras on you and you know it's being live, live streamed to your children and your mom and, and your friends and family. So there is a lot of pressure. Um, and then you're locked back in the room and you come out one at a time to climb your climb. You don't get to see anyone else climb it, so you can't copy their beta or their pathway up the wall. You just do your best in the moment and you climb what's in front of you. So I did that and I honestly didn't feel great um, going out. I actually said to a friend right before I went out, oh my goodness, I've just realised my hair, like I slept in this hair last night. I haven't even done my hair today. Do I look bad? She's like, to be honest, you look pretty rough. <laughs> um, and I whipped the plaits out really quick and tied it into this manky ponytail and I just went out there and I gave it my all and I did my best and I came second. But yeah, that was day one of COVID for me, as it turned out. Ah, <laughs> uh, I see. So COVID was indeed in your system then. It was. And the fog is real. People say the brain fog. And honestly, I was just looking at this route and I just stood there. And I was like, uh, I got nothing. <laughs> when you're trying to make your brain work under pressure, I feel like nothing is going in. It's just like so hard, isn't it? And yeah. you were up vomiting. And I mean, you to come second with all of that is yeah. just epic. Yeah, and, and it was a really special podium because actually all three wahini on that podium, first, second, and third, um, Tanya Shaves, Sarah La, and myself, we all brought home the first medal ever for our countries for able or disabled male or female. So that's just such a beautiful piece of history to be a part of. It doesn't seem to matter now in hindsight that it was silver, not gold. I grew through that. I definitely felt like I came out of it. Um, as an athlete, whereas I went in with a lot of imposter syndrome. And now I feel like, man, I've had quite a season. It wasn't the season I expected, but I'm definitely an athlete <laughs> and and a part of a really special piece of history. So that was cool. New Zealand is very proud of you. Oh, thank yeah, you. That is so cool. And then obviously having COVID or coming down with COVID while you're over there, put a bit of a spanner in the works for you, didn't it? Holy moly. I think just I'm not fond of spanners is the moral of the story. <laughs> Either to pull a joint apart or to upset a World Cup circuit are not my favourite. Yeah, so I um, isolated for a week with COVID. I was very, very unwell. We made a trip to an after-hours emergency doctor um, for some medications to help. And they said, look, if in doubt, you need to go straight to an ER. And sure enough, within 12 hours, middle of the night, of course, um, I've got severe pain in one side. Um, and I'd already discussed symptoms to look out for with a doctor. And one of them was severe pain, which can, can be pneumonia. Um, and just, yeah, and I wasn't, wasn't finding it very easy to breathe. And it was all quite terrifying. So off we go to the ER. Um, and lung x-rays and bloods later. I didn't have pneumonia, but I did have a really, really, really severe case of bronchitis on top of the COVID. And I was sent home with a nebulizer machine, so I needed to use that every hour um, to start with, and then I could dial it back every few hours. And 
that machine went with me all around Europe um, after that. And I don't think I stopped using it until we got to Germany right at the end for a bit of leisure climbing. It so was quite a month or two. <laughs> can you explain what a nebulizer machine is? Oh, sure. Um, this one I was nebulizing saline. So you put a little bit of saline in, um, in what looks like a cup and then that's connected to a pump and to a mouthpiece and the pump just pumps air through that so that you're breathing in the saline as um, oxygen and that moistens the air that you're breathing in and it's to help break down that mucus in your lungs and clear your pathway to breathing, which for me was very, very congested to the point that I didn't have enough oxygen. I was also at altitude as well. I live at sea level in New Zealand and I caught COVID at very high altitude. So my oxygen levels were not in a good way at all. Um, and I, I think I was very lucky to be in the US actually when I think about it because they are a little bit further down the COVID pathway, um, not as overwhelmed in their health system, definitely overwhelmed, but not as overwhelmed. And I was able to get care, I think, because of where New Zealand was at that point, I could have been on that borderline cut-off point as to whether I had support or didn't have support. So, yeah, I was really, I guess, thankful to be where I was, although it was not ideal mm. <laughs> from a competition perspective. It was, it was a huge heartbreak. Mm. So mm. then what happened from trying to get over COVID, which for you had a very long, horrible tail, mm. where did you head to next? Uh, I went to Salt Lake. From from there, I went to uh, LA to live on a little sailboat for a week or two and continue training. I wasn't actually able to train that much, but I did get on the wall two or three times. And then we departed for Austria for the first the, the first European World Cup. Um, that World Cup happened at the end of June. And over that month, I think I climbed maybe three times. And I wasn't able to wear a leg by that point. Mm. Unfortunately, COVID impacted me and that I lost weight. And then my prosthetic did not fit after that. I ended up with pressure sores. The pressure sores then got infected and I was in a hospital in both Austria and Germany trying to get treatment for that. Um, so my traveling companion literally has photos of me passed out asleep for hours on the floor of a climbing gym where I've showed up to training and I just have not made it past putting my harness on. <laughs> um, and that was how the next two months went. I had two more World Cups to get through, but I couldn't train. I couldn't walk. Uh, struggling to find the food that I like, the right foods and nutrition to eat. I wasn't sleeping properly. And then I would just show up for these World Cups on the day and do my best. That was all I could do. And I did still qualify for finals in both events. And I placed fourth in both of them at the end of the day so pretty amazing results given the circumstances but not what I went there for I was there for a medal and that didn't happen so you have to take the wins and the losses and the you know the ups and the downs and it's all part of the journey um yeah but I'm not fond of COVID <laughs> let's put it put it that way no and you had a, a another close call recently when Charlotte caught it as well yes Yes, Charlotte. Um, Charlotte's just had it. So actually, interestingly, the boys had it not long before I left. And so we all isolated together. And because it was about eight to nine weeks before I was heading overseas, I kind of in the end 
I'm not saying this is a good idea, but I was pretty slack with my um, self, my distancing from them. Like if they needed a hug and they were sick, I was like, I'm going to give you a hug. You're sick um, and I'm your mum. And actually both of them sneezed in my face when I was doing your rap tests. And I, in both instances, had forgotten to put a mask on, not deliberately, but had forgotten. And I didn't catch it. Um, and then I caught it overseas. And then I came home and thought that maybe we'd be going in for round two because it was right on the three-month mark. So we've just done another week's lockdown with Charlotte having it. Um, thankfully, nobody else in the house got it. So mm. touch wood, we're still okay at the moment. But, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to get through these limb centre appointments in Tauranga. That's a five-and-a-half-hour drive for me there and then five-and-a-half hours back in um, I've been waiting for months for this, so it was really nice to just yeah, get her through it and not come down with it and still have that pathway ahead, hopefully, to more mobility. Yes, thank goodness. COVID's mm. caused so many disruptions with appointments and healthcare and, yeah, just just. I do think, now it's shown us how resilient we can be and it's mm. given us a really good um reminder of how important both self-care and looking after other people in our bubbles is like there are two things that sometimes we forget I think it's really easy to throw the hashtag out there it's okay to not be okay but are we actually being proactive about helping ourselves to not get to that point or helping others to not get to that point and do we know what to look for in in those things do we know how to um to spot someone who's not okay. You know, September is Suicide Awareness Month and I think it's really important to make sure that we're putting the positives out there and the coping strategies and the skills and the really easy things that we can do to look after each other, like those random acts of kindness and just making that the loudest story when we mm. talk about COVID, mm-hmm. um, turning up the volume on what we've learned through it and how we've grown and how we're stronger together then becoming you know really overwhelmed by by the way it's impacted us negatively and I could have come off that trip and just gone home in a complete strop that I had so much heartbreak but um I don't think that would help me at all I don't think it helps my kids and it's not how I want to live so yeah, when I think about COVID, while it's frustrating, I just, I really want to think about the ways that I grew through it mm-hmm. and, and the ways that we can all grow through it. And um, while I was in Austria, a friend back home lost her husband to suicide and it was really hard to keep going. I, I like, it just felt like there wasn't a point to a competition or a point to all this recreation and fun and tripping around the world when people I know are dying um, all the time and so yeah I guess I just wanted to um, give a nod to September and Suicide Awareness Month and just make sure that we are focusing on what we can do to grow and to support each other and to pull together as a community rather than screw COVID it's horrible it is horrible it is it's a heartbreak for so many people Um, but let's not let it be bigger than than the, yeah, than, than the things that could come out of it that had taught us and helped us to grow. Mm. Definitely. And with the mental health conversations, I it frust- well, it's important that we spread the message and raise awareness, but I do feel like a lot of people talk about it and like say, oh, you know, we need to speak up about these things and it's all over social media. But the reality is 
when we sit down in front of people, I don't think we're actually doing all of what the talk is on social media. We're not actually having good conversations or actually helping mm. people. And like I said, sometimes actions are louder than words. Yeah. With yep. this kind of and thing. That is really hard to do, and I do get that sometimes it's easier to say on social media, I'm not okay, or the week's been hard. And it's really hard to do that with a friend in, in person. But I think that's something we had to practice and develop. And mm. the reason that's so important is because it builds trust within yourself. So for me, when I look at where I am now, my mental health journey and where I was, you know, a few years ago, now I know when I'm in a rut, these are the safe people that I can go and talk to. And this is the text that I'll send them. I've already practiced that text before. Um, and I know I, I trust them to look out for me and to help me get me back on my feet again. And in all of those experiences, I've learned to trust myself to get through another blip. And when you develop that trust in yourself, it means that you hit a roadblock or you hit a slump and you're like, it's okay. I've done this before. I know that I can do it again. It's going to be rough, but this is my plan. And now I'm going to do the things on my plan and it's going to be okay. And I think they are the real conversations we need to be having with people, mm -hmm. um, that we can develop that trust in ourselves, and that that does become resilience and then that eventually becomes somebody else's resilience because we find ourselves in a place where we can offer rather than receive. Um, but that's hard. And, you know, set small targets, maybe to text to a friend and you say, I listened to a podcast and it talked about mental health and I just need to say to a friend I'm not okay. I don't know what to do about that, but I'm saying it out loud. Like if one person listening can do that, then um, that's a really positive outcome. Mm. One of my favourite expressions as well is this too shall pass. And I think it's very easy when we're in, having a bit of a tough time is to think, you know, we're just stuck in a rut and we can't get out of it. And, you know, everything just seems really bad at that moment. But in a bit of time... And, every, you know, everyone can get through it. You look back and it, it's a blip that happened. And it may be in a few years' time for you to look back and, you know, think, oh, yeah, I got through that. But everything does pass eventually. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very hard to see that when you're in the depths of a really challenging part of your life. Yeah, but that's, yeah, it's, it's incredibly hard. And I, um, I've been there. I wrote a post about this um, a little while ago about how, you need to have written down somewhere or have asked friends to remind you when you forget that life is so much more than what you can see right now. Mm -hmm. And when I think about my journey as an athlete and a climber and, you know, like I'm quite a dysfunctional adult on many levels, but I'm, I represent my country and, um, and I got to bring a medal home for my children and put it around their necks. And all of that, like all of that would be so inconceivable to me um, five years ago, I would have just, if you'd said that to me, I wouldn't have believed you at all. Okay, we're just diving back in. We just had a little interruption because Rachel was actually receiving a random act of kindness. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Somebody at the door with a flower delivery. That was very sweet. That is lovely. It's probably made your day. It has. Yeah. yeah. Sitting on my table looking very colourful. <laughs> So what's next for you, Rachel? You're, um, hopefully you've got these appointments in the next few days to get your prosthetics sorted. Mm -hmm. And then have you got any plans for your climbing in the next year or so? 
Yeah, well, I mean, legs are a priority, so I need a new walking and a new climbing leg. And I'm really hoping this summer I can get some time outdoors on the rock. So good for the soul, the fresh air. Uh, I've got some projects I want to work on. And just being around the climbing whānau and um, being a part of it. We've got a climbing festival coming up in October, which will be exciting. And the next couple of years, yes, more sport climbing. I'm not done there yet. Um, I still want to bring home New Zealand's first gold. So that's on my radar. The World Cup circuit has just been announced, um, the different locations. So that will be next year from May, June through to August, finishing with a world championship in Bern in Switzerland. Oh, wow. That will be very exciting. Um, my biggest challenge is going to continue to be funding. We're not a funded sport in New Zealand at all. Um, in fact, I have an outstanding invoice for climbing New Zealand for my World Cup competition fees. I need to pay that. So we pay for literally everything, um, our uniform, our competition fees. For me, travel, because I don't have a climbing wall in my town. So many, many hours in a car and much, much petrol. So, yeah, I guess the next six months I really need to work hard on the, yeah, on the, the fundraising or funding or sponsorship side of it. Um, but... Apart from that, just more climbing, more love of the sport and training and going hard and hopefully more speaking as well. I'm available for keynotes or end-of-year functions. Um, I think there's so much power in our stories and I've been really encouraged by people that have shared theirs. So um, public speaking something I've wanted to do since I was 16, actually. I just didn't realise I had so much journey <laughs> to do before I would be there, but here I am, and um, yeah, if anyone is interested in a speaker for their event, they can reach out. Mm. How can people find you, Rachel? Our easiest option is social media. So, Instagram, my handle is Rachel Meyer NZ, and you could also drop me an email at rachelmeyerclines at gmail.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's been really wonderful very honest and uh even in the time i've known you since i think was around march when we first chatted uh, yeah. i feel like i've actually learned so much from you and your experiences and just about climbing as well there's actually so much i didn't know about climbing so um it's a really complex sport isn't it there's so much more to it than i ever knew yeah yeah and look i know we didn't touch on uh, your contribution to that World Cup circuit as well today. I think we've a little bit run out of time for all the nutrition <laughs> side of things. But um, thank you so much for your input. Honestly, I think when I look back at how much of a battle that trip was, I'm so glad that I had some really good tools in my toolbox for dealing with nutrition and hydration in particular um, in the heat and altitude. And I definitely highly recommend anyone that's listening that um just in whatever your life goals are whether they're personal or competitive to um reach out to Krishna. she's a gem to work with and she'll break it all down um i loved the way you would send me a homework list afterwards <laughs> and say so have you dot 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 and most of the time the answer was no i forgot about that thank you for the list um, so that was really valuable for me. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. That's very kind of you. And yes, I do love my lists. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Woman after my own heart. <laughs> 
Well, thanks so much for your time today, Rachel. It's been a real honour to have you on. And I'm sure a lot of people will, um, yeah, reach out and might even grab you for some speaking events. Yeah, and look, go hard. If you're a young climber or any athlete, um, my advice to you would be it's great to have those big goals that are valid, um, work hard on them, but remember that it is a journey and whatever happens in your journey, you're going to grow as a human. So that's the most important part is growing and the togetherness. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Thanks so much. Cool. Namahi.